Okay, Culture Prayer Conference, Session 2, the call to night and day prayer. We are going to look at some really interesting ideas in the Bible. I like it when subjective prophecies come forth and they land. You know, when somebody gives you a word and you're like, man, that was right on. I like that, but there's nothing like the Bible. There is nothing like the foundations of the Word of God because it's, it's immutable, it's irrefutable. It, it is the Word, and it is the Word no matter in season, out of season, it is truth. And so when we want to develop our understanding and our theology about something, we don't want to get that from Internet prophecies or even from, you know, good teachers. We want to get it from the Word. We want to see what the Word of God says. Now, the reason I bring that up we're going to talk about some things in this conference that I would bet there's a good chance that some of the ideas might be new to you. You don't want to be scared by new ideas. You want to be investigators. Are these new ideas in the Bible? Because if it's an idea in the Bible that we can clearly see, we want to run with it even if it's not what we grew up knowing or learning. Even if it's not comfortable with what it is that we're most commonly, uh, you know, accustomed to hearing. If it's in the word, we want to see it and go, man, Lord, instruct me. Teach me about these things. So, tonight, we're going to talk about what the word of God says about night and day prayer. Because that's a pretty crazy idea, if you ask me. There's a certain glory and a certain uh, bit of, uh, of tumult connected to the idea of unceasing things. You know, whenever you get, uh, you know, like a all-you-can-eat buffet, I mean, there's something glorious and glorious about that option, that opportunity. It's like, all I can eat? When do I stop eating? When you're done, friend. When you're done. And that's great and exciting. It's also a great way to gain like 15 pounds in one meal, right? There is something exciting and also a little scary about things that have no end to them, okay? I think about the 24-7 Walmart. I'm like, man, that thing is incredible. You can go there in the middle of the night and buy cereal. You can go there in the middle of the day. You can go there on the weekend. You can go there whenever, and you can get whatever you want. It's like, that is a really cool thing. I also think about it. It's like, man, what's their light bill cost? You know, man, that's expensive. And I mean, like all these employees, and how do they keep that place clean all the time? There's a certain, you know, mysterious nature to it. Well, when we talk about the subject of night and day prayer, I recognize that there's both of those elements kind of about it. The idea that there could be a prayer meeting that goes night and day and how cool that would be. And just as a little point of like, make you jealous and get you to come visit us, we've nearly got it back in Dallas. We're 22 hours a day, seven days a week. Come check it out sometime. There's something glorious about it, but it's also like really intense. I think about the rigor. And I think both the intensity of, of, the, of the glory of it and also of the rigor, I think both are God-ordained. I think that we're supposed to understand both of those things. But there is something about our mindset that I want to introduce us to because in this conference, we're going to be talking about what God is doing in the earth right now where he is awakening expressions of night and day prayer and worship all over the earth. And while that's really exciting, I want us to not think of it with rose-tinted glasses because it is tough. And what I want to do tonight in this first uh, kind of session in the Word is I want to introduce us to the glory and the glory of night and day prayer. So here we got it. 
Proverbs 23, 6 through 7, there's two different ways to think about the cost. The idea of night and day prayer, oh man, that's going to take a lot. It's going to be so much work. Let's look at what the word has to say. Proverbs 23, 6 through 7. Do not eat the food of a begrudging host. Do not crave his delicacies. For he is the kind of person who is always thinking about the cost. Eat and drink, he says to you, but his heart is not with you. Now, let's just look at what's happening here. There's this guy, and he has decided of his own free will, he's going to host a big old dinner. He's going to make all the stuff. He's going to get the cooks, you know, cooking all the different delicacies and all this stuff, all the different stuff. He's going to have a big spread of food, a big banquet. He's going to invite all these people. And when they show up, the whole time they're there eating his food, he's counting dollars per bite. They're taking a bite. He goes, oh, that was a $2 bite there, you gangster. Oh, you're going back for seconds. Oh, thirds for you, huh? Thirds, huh? And he's just like, he is caught up. He is consumed with everybody that came to his house and is eating his food. It's kind of ridiculous. It's like, dude, just don't throw the party. Why you got to let everybody in and then get all judgy, you know, about them eating your food? Now, listen, I want to tell you about his neighbor. The guy right down the street, same budget for the meal. Same number of cooks, same menu, same spread. He spends the same amount of time, same amount of energy, and it's a lot of energy. And he invites all his friends, and they're over at his house, and he is having the time of his life. He's, he's eating with them, and he's over there being chummy with these guys and talking and laughing. And he goes over there, he goes, oh, yeah, yeah, go get some more of that. I know, man. Oh, man, she made a good one on that. You got to go get double. And he's having the time of his life with these friends, and the meal cost the same amount of money. What's different? It's perspective. In our walk with Christ and in the building of the house of prayer, it is fact that it is costly to follow Jesus. And I want to tell you specific to the house of prayer, building prayer meetings is costly. I've been doing this for 18 years. It is hard. In fact, I've been doing a number of different ministry uh, types. I've done church planning, missions, uh, youth ministry, college ministry. Uh, youth ministry is also called zookeeping, if you didn't know that already. Um, church planting, pastoring. I mean, I've done a lot of the different stuff. There has been nothing I've done in ministry, nothing, that is near as hard as building the house of prayer. You go, well, why is that? Because in every other ministry, the focus is what I'm going to give you. And in prayer... It's asking people to come and give Jesus something. And as Americans, we love to say amen, but it's really tough for our lifestyle to align with that amen on a consistent basis. And so what I've seen for 18 years is people get excited for a while and then they quit. And as a leader, that's really challenging because they were doing the prayer meeting on Tuesday and now they're not doing the prayer meeting on Tuesday anymore. And now I need to find somebody to do the prayer meeting on Tuesday. And so it's the hardest ministry I have ever done. And I just told you a crazy story about going to Africa. The hardest ministry I know, there is a great cost to build this house of prayer. But there's two ways to look at it. One way is to look at the cost and go, I can't believe it. This is, I'm a begrudging host. I don't want to do this for you, Jesus. I'm mad about it. It's hard. The second is, I get to do this for you. And it is costly. And I get to give you something beautiful. And it is of great cost. And instead of being begrudged, we honor it, we value it, we cherish it. 
but it's the same cost either way. So I want to tell you, this whole conference is about a very costly concept. But if we can start off at the beginning going, it's worth it. If we can change our perspectives from, oh, I don't want to drive across town again. Oh, I did this last week. Oh, man, I don't want to do it again. Man, I'm in a bad mood. I was in a car accident today. I'm sad. You know, my kids are crazy. Your kids are always crazy. Go to the prayer meeting. If we can just count the cost and say, you know what? It is costly. But in the midst of that, I get to give Jesus something beautiful. That can really help us in our perspective. Now, the night that I had this encounter with the Lord where he said, start a daily prayer meeting tomorrow morning at 5 a.m. and don't stop until I come back. You can tell that one really stuck with me, didn't it? Um, that same night, uh, after I'd made the phone calls and such, and I was kind of winding down, ready to go to bed, maybe it was around 10 o'clock or something, um, I was reading through the Bible, and I'd been doing a reading plan where I'd been reading through the Old Testament, whatever, a few chapters every night. I don't remember exactly what it was, but the night before I had left off in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 23, meaning that the night that the Lord said start a daily prayer meeting, I'm going to start reading my Bible in 2 Samuel chapter 24. It's just the perfect setup of God. Because here I am, I just got this word, start a daily prayer meeting, and I'm thinking, this is costly. <laughs> it's like, oh, and do it until, oh, until you come back. I don't even know about that. And I'm really struggling with the cost of it all. I'm saying yes, but I'm really struggling with it. And I read this passage in 2 Samuel chapter 24. I want you to read it with me. I had no idea that this was going to happen to me that night. Bottom of page one. On that day, God went to David and he said to him, Go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. So David went up as the Lord had commanded through God. Aruna said to David, let my lord the king take whatever he wishes and offer it up. Here are the oxen for the burnt offerings, the threshing sledges, and the ox yokes for the wood. But the king replied to Aruna, No! I insist on paying you for it. I will not sacrifice to the lord my god burnt offerings that cost me nothing. I read that. I will not offer to you something, Lord, that doesn't cost me something significant. It's actually the gift of God that we would get to give him a costly gift. And a gift that isn't costly really isn't that valuable. So I want to tell you, if you have some thoughts jumping around in your head, coming to prayer meetings all the time is costly. You're right. But the perspective is, it's a gift that we get to give him instead of a begrudging response. I can't believe you would want this. I can't believe our church would say do this. I, I can't believe this. So we've got a wrong attitude. We've got a very wrong perspective. So I just wanted to start us with that as we now jump into what I believe to be the will of God for the church. So let's look at Roman numeral two. Now, I'm going to take you down a journey that I felt like the Lord led me on. We started the house of prayer, not because IHOP Kansas City did it, or because Upper Room did it. Upper Room hadn't even started yet. We were doing it because the Lord told me to start a daily prayer meeting. And so we were doing it by the word of the Lord, okay? But that doesn't mean that I understood from the Bible what we were doing. That took time, okay? Often we say yes in obedience, and we come to understanding later, okay? And I just want to give you, if 
for you type A's that really have to have everything figured out before you jump, I just want to tell you, Jesus ain't like that sometimes. And so sometimes we just say, yes, sir, and then we figure it out as we go. And I know that rubs you wrong a little bit sometimes. You just deal with it, okay? Um, it's just part of the way that the kingdom of God operates. So I'm reading the word, and I'm, I'm doing these prayer meetings every day. And we're feeling led more and more to do more prayer meetings. But I don't necessarily have a theology behind it yet. And I start reading through the New Testament, and I'm like, is this even biblical? Like, we are spending a lot of time in prayer meetings right now. And I started to discover some teachings that Jesus had about the subject of prayer. I want to read you a couple of verses here. Uh, first, this is, uh, yeah, this is uh, Luke 18, 1, and really it's 1 through 8. You could, uh, you could put that in there. Um, the, the disciples are about to be told this parable. You guys all know the parable of the persistent widow. It's really interesting. I always thought the parable of the persistent widow, I always thought it was about being persistent. Like, and even persistent in prayer. I thought that that's what the parable was about. Did you know that is not what the parable is about? Look at this. Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. Now that's different than persistent. Because the parable that's about to be told is Jesus giving this instruction about how the kingdom of God operates. And he says, I'm, in essence, I'm going to tell you a parable, and I'm telling you the meaning of the parable even before we get to the parable. The meaning of the parable is that the people of God should always pray and not give up. Now, here's the thing about us as Americans. We're funny. We love to downgrade words. It's like one of our spiritual gifts, I think. We look at the Bible, and we see it says always. And we read sometimes. It's the funniest thing. We are a fickle group. The Bible says always pray, and we go, ah, he doesn't mean always. He means sometimes. Maybe he means sometimes plus a little. But he can't possibly mean always, because always means always. and He can't mean that. And not give up. Oh, no, maybe he does mean always. And then if you know the passage, which I did you a little bit of a disservice by not giving you the rest of that passage, uh, but the rest of the passage says, will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? No, I tell you, he will see to it that they get justice and quickly. But when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? I want to break this down a little bit. The parable isn't about being persistent. The parable is about always praying. Now, always praying, you could reinterpret that and call it night and day prayer, which it just so happens Jesus does. Because in the parable that starts off with, I'm going to tell you a parable about always praying, then he backs it up and says, those chosen ones who cry out night and day. He says, I will treat prayer ministries and I will treat people who pray night and day, I will treat them differently. I will see to it that they get justice and they get it quickly. And then he says this really interesting phrase that makes you wonder if Jesus has got split personalities. He just got done telling us a parable about praying always. 
And then he reinterpreted the word always to say night and day. And he says, and not give up. So it's really clear what the parable is about. We don't have to like it. But the parable is about literal night and day, always praying, not stop praying prayer. That's what the parable is about. And then Jesus says, but when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? He's not talking about saving faith. That's not what the parable is about. It's not like Jesus just told this parable. He's like, yeah, but when I come back, will there be any saved people? He's saying, will I find a church on the earth embodying what I just taught? He's saying, when I return, will I find people engaging in night and day prayer? Oh my gosh. I'm reading this and I'm going, I cannot believe these words are in the Bible. That Jesus is challenging us to night and day prayer, to not giving up prayer, to always prayer. And that word always will really mess with you because you can't find a dictionary on the planet that downgrades that word to mean something other than always. Because that's what he said and that's what he meant. And I thought, you're a crazy person. How will we do this? We're Americans. We're very busy down here. He's like, y'all can work that out on your own. I just want a praying church on the earth that's always praying. And when I come back, I'm actually looking for that. Dang. So now it's just a couple of chapters later. And now it's Luke chapter 21, 34 through 36. Jesus says, be careful or your hearts will be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness and the anxieties of life and that day speaking of the end times and that day will close on you suddenly like a trap it's kind of interesting the passage that we just read was a prayer passage that ended with jesus talking about when the son of man comes the end times he says when i come back will i find the church praying night and day and now it's another end times passage just a couple chapters later he says, be careful or your hearts are not going to respond well in that last generation. He says, you're going to have trouble. He says, be careful or bad things are going to happen to you. Bad things? I don't like bad things. Jesus, make the bad things go away. He goes, I can help you make the bad things go away. Be careful or your hearts will be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and anxieties of life. And that day will close on you suddenly like a trap. For it, that day, will come on all those who live on the face of the whole earth describing the end time drama what the whole earth is going to have to answer for and he says pastor jesus jumps in oh thank you for pastor jesus he helps us through many things because prophet jesus says crazy stuff okay so but pastor jesus comes and he helps us okay so he says he says listen i can help you because i know you're all freaking out right now what are we going to do you just promised us we're going to have a bad day you just said be careful or else Okay, well, what does careful look like? Jesus goes, I got you. Glad you asked. Glad you wanted to know what careful looks like. Here's what careful looks like. Be always on the watch and pray. Always. There it is again. Always pray. That's just what we read in Luke 18. Always pray night and day prayer. When I come back, will I find the church doing it? Here it is in the midst of all the chaos that's going to be happening. I want to give you the prescription for how you're going to handle the anxieties and the difficulties of the final generation. You need to be a people that always pray. Okay. Now here's my thought. I'm reading these verses 
And these aren't the only verses. They're just a couple of them because for sake of time. I'm reading these verses and I'm going, you taught about this stuff. It's crazy. It's not American. It's certainly not what I grew up hearing in church, but it's in the Bible. And you like back it up again and again. And we know from John's, uh, you know, account of the gospels that there's not enough room on the shelves for all the books that could be written to describe all the things that Jesus did. How about all the things that Jesus said? We don't have written down everything that came out of the man's mouth. What we have is a documentation, the Gospels, and the first chapter of Acts, and a couple chapters in Revelation. We've got these Gospels that describe to us the kinds of things Jesus talked about all the time. So when we're reading these sermons that he gave, these conversations that he had, these teachings, these doctrines, these are the kinds of things he was saying many, many times. Not just said one time and some apostle wrote it and I was like, oh, I got that one little phrase that he said. This was the ministry of Jesus Christ. So the things that are we have recorded in the New Testament, specifically in the Gospels, it's the kinds of stuff he talked about with his dudes all the time. So he's got his apostles there walking around with him. He has this sermon over here. He's at this person's house. He's having a conversation. These are the kinds of things. So we don't know how many times this kind of doctrine was being presented. But here was the question that was in my heart as, you know, a 25-year-old that started these prayer meetings in my living room. I go, what if he actually meant it? What if when he said, always pray and don't give up, pray night and day, what if he actually meant we were supposed to literally have unceasing prayer and worship? What if that's actually what he meant? Here's what came to my mind. Well, if that's what he meant, if he actually said that and meant it, not he said it and I'm misinterpreting it, not he said it and we don't really know what to do with it. If that's what he said and that's what he meant, it makes sense to me. When he left, they'd do it. I mean, does that make sense? If he taught that this was actually what was supposed to happen, it makes sense to me that when he left, they do it because he was teaching them like what Christianity was supposed to look like, what the church was supposed to, how it was supposed to operate. So it makes sense to me that when they left, when he left, they do it. So let's read what happened when he left. This is Acts 1, 4, and then uh, Acts 1, 12 through 14. While he was eating with them, he gave them this command. This is during the, at the end of the 40 days. So he's already resurrected. Okay. He's about to ascend to heaven. While he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem. They all joined together constantly in prayer. Along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. They all joined together constantly. We really want to find a way to change these words. Because if we read what is written and take it at its face value, what it means is they all join together constantly in prayer. Which is exactly what he told them to do. Always pray and not give up and do it night and day, just in case you were concerned that I wasn't talking about the night as well. Oh my gosh, are you serious? Yeah, and then... This is before the, the outpouring happens. Now, some might go, okay, well, they needed to pray night and day in order to jumpstart Pentecost. We got to do a 24-hour prayer meeting in order to get the Holy Spirit to fall. And I'm like, 
That's not bad doctrine. I kind of like that. But what happened after Pentecost? Now the Holy Spirit has fallen just a little bit uh, into, you know, chapter uh, 2. But now it's chapter 2, verse 42, and it's describing the apostolic lifestyle of the New Testament church. Post-Pentecost, the Holy Spirit has already fallen. And this is what it says. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. They devoted themselves to prayer. Now, I just want to say it this way. It is the kindness of the Lord that he uses multiple words and multiple circumstances to describe the same situation or the same concept in the word so that we can see it over here and it reads this way and we can see it over here and it reads a little bit different but it's describing the same situation. We'd get a little bored if he used the exact same phrase every single time to describe something. Plus, it doesn't paint quite as full of a picture. So it's kindness of the Holy Spirit that the Word of God uses multiple terms and multiple scenarios to describe the same thing, like always, constantly, and night and day, right? But that's not the end of it. Oh, that's not the end of it. This gets so heavy. We're all doomed because I think the Lord actually wants us to do this. So my thought process is, okay, well, if if they did it, if the if Jesus said do it, and now it's the New Testament church and they're actually doing it. And now the day of Pentecost has happened and it says they're devoted to prayer. What does that devoted to prayer look like? Well, we've already got a reference. Jesus told them to always pray and not stop. And when he left, they started praying together constantly. So when we read the word devoted, we don't need to start over like we need to come up with a new version of what does devoted mean. We've already got reference. We've already got a storyline that's marching forward. But here's where it came to me. I thought, you know what? If it's true, I don't know really know if I want to believe this or not, but if it's really true that the church in Jerusalem was praying night and day, that Jesus taught it and that they were praying night and day, the true test to me would be what happened when they started doing church plans. The true test to me would be not were they doing it in Jerusalem only? Because maybe you need that whole jumpstart thing for the church in, in Jerusalem. You got to like, you know, a fiery community, kind of home base, you know, that kind of a thing. But to me, the real test, if it's God, that we're supposed to be praying night and day, 24-7, without ceasing, constantly, always, if we're really supposed to be doing that, the test to me would be what happened when they began to plant churches outside of the home base of Jerusalem. What instruction were they given? How were they living? Now, most of you know this, but the New Testament epistles, the letters that were written to the churches, very little, not none, but very little new information was presented in those epistles to those that were hearing it. Most of it was reminders. Most of it, remember when I was with you, I taught you this, remember this. Paul and Peter and the others, they're not writing brand new information mostly. There was a little brand new. Most of it was just reminding them how to be Christians. Because he was already with them. He, Paul, or Peter, or John, or whoever. James, they were all with these churches, giving them instruction for long periods of time. And they're reminding them, they're exhorting them. So when we read these New Testament letters and what they have to say, so much of it was reminding them of the lifestyle they were already supposed to be living. Does that make sense? Okay. So let's see what Paul writes to Corinth, to Ephesus, to Philippi to uh, the Colossians, to Rome, and to Thessalonica. Let's just see what he writes. Pray that you would devote yourselves to prayer, Paul says to the Corinthians. 
that you would devote yourselves to prayer. Same language out of Acts chapter 2 of what the New Testament lifestyle was supposed to be. A people who were devoted to prayer. Well, what does he say to Philippi? Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. I just I want you to catch this for a second. Paul, in every situation? Yes. Do you mean this situation? Yes. How about this one? Yes, that too. How about the one that immediately follows that situation? Yes, in that situation as well. I'm telling you to do what Jesus told us to do. Pray always. In all situations, in all circumstances, and always present your requests to God. Oh my gosh. He's reminding the Philippians because they were a church plant. He's reminding the Philippians of what New Testament Christianity looks like. They're supposed to always be praying together. Okay? What about the Colossians? Colossians 4.2. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. Language straight out of Acts 2 again. How about to Romans? He says, be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, and faithful in prayer. See, when you and I hear faithful in prayer, we're, we're lining that up against, we're comparing that concept to whoever it is that we know that's the greatest prayer warrior. Like whoever in your community is like, you know, brother so-and-so, they go for, oh, sister so-and-so, she can pray the paint off the walls. And we're comparing whatever version, whatever it looks like when we hear the term faithful in prayer, we're comparing it to whoever it is that we've got that we think that that is, right? They were doing that too. It just so happens that what faithful in prayer looked like in the first century church was always pray and do not give up. That's what it looked like. These are crazy, crazy things. The end of uh, Ephesians, uh, yeah, I skipped Ephesians, sorry. Pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying. Paul is using the words of Jesus like a weapon. Always keep on praying. Oh no, that's what Jesus said. Do you think we're supposed to do it? It's so intense. Paul is teaching the churches. He's reminding them of what it means to be a New Testament Christian. Always pray. Keep on praying. Pray without ceasing. Oh my goodness. Be faithful in prayer. Okay, well, if you've got any question, because if I were you, I would try to have a question. Because if we don't have a question, we're in deep doo-doo here. Because it means we need to always pray. Okay? If you've got any question, you might want to leave the room right now quickly because I'm going to read First Thessalonians before you can leave. Okay, let's read it. All right, so let's read First Thessalonians, top of page four. Rejoice always, pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances. Now wait just real quick because the preacher in me just can't, can't stop. Rejoice always. Rejoice at the circumstance circumstance I rejoice at you no rejoice to God right well if you're rejoicing to God isn't that like an interaction with God I would call that prayer okay so if you will pray always which is what we've been told multiple times before right pray continually just in case you didn't get the message continually like that's scarier than always there's like no way around that one. I don't, these words are bad words. These are, these are dirty words in your Bible. Continually pray. Give thanks in all circumstances. To who? I love that it's your culture to give thanks to God all the time. I love that. But you're giving thanks to God, not 
thanks to the circumstance. You're giving thanks to him. It's prayer. So if you will, it's pray always, pray continually, and pray in all circumstances. If you will. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Uh, what? Wait a minute. Hang on a second. Okay, hang on. Okay, wait a minute. I, I want to know the will of God for my life, but not if that's it. We've got this ministry back home, our prayer room. It's mostly young adults. And one of the funniest things about young adults, they all want to know, what's the will of God for my life? Like I know somehow, like what God wants to do with all their lives. I'm like, I don't know, just pray. And like, I don't know who they're supposed to marry and what they're going to do in this. And I don't know that. But one thing I do know for sure, I do know the will of God for their life. It's for them to pray continually. This is a real challenging problem because this does not reflect what American Christianity looks like at all. I don't want to have the form of Christianity that I'm comfortable with. I want to have the form of Christianity that the Bible exhorts us into. And this is a real challenge because after Paul wrote to New Testament church, after New Testament church, after New Testament church plant, then he says, the will of God for your life in Christ Jesus is that you would pray continually. So I remember reading this and going, this is so intense. How are we going to do this? Now, I've got some really good news for you. because Some of you are like, I am not coming back tomorrow. This man is bad. when I first came to Christ, somebody said this phrase, and I think it's real. It's kind of cute. I think it's real. It's just incomplete. Here's the phrase. Some preacher somewhere held up the Bible and said, this is God's love letter written to you. And there's a lot of truth in that, but it's not the full truth. Because the Bible was not written to me. It was written to us. And the reason that matters is there's a lot of things in the Bible that the Bible says we're supposed to do that you just flat cannot do by yourself. The Great Commission. Good luck. Go to all the nations. Just you, though. Not anybody else. Just you. Because God wrote the love letter to you only. You're supposed to go to every nation, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Holy Spirit, and teach them everything Jesus taught. But, you know, you got 40 years ready to go by yourself. You will never do that, but you were never supposed to. We are supposed to. The Bible is not written to me. The Bible is written to we. And that is a massive distinction. Because when the New Testament letters were written, they weren't written to individuals. And even the letters that were written to individuals were written to individuals about the corporate church. The New Testament was written to congregations. So Paul isn't talking to a Thessalonian. He is talking to the church at Thessalonica. And he says, church at Thessalonica... I charge you corporately, pray continually. We can do things that I cannot. And that's the body of Christ. That was always the point, is that we would share the load. So I just want to tell you that when the New Testament over and over says pray continually, pray without ceasing, pray always, it is not a charge to you as an individual. It is a charge to us corporately. And I want to give you an account back in Arlington, Texas, which is as American of a place as you can find, 
there's 90 people that are rallied together that are accomplishing nearly continual prayer. We're real close. We're 22 hours a day, seven days a week. Nearly. So we're not there yet, but we've been reaching for it for 18 years. Do you know the Lord honors the reach of the heart? It's the same as the completion. It's the reach. I mean, he knows that we're all but dust. I mean, he knows that we're like little kids. I don't look at my kid that, you know, can't yet accomplish this task or whatever. I see their reach and I go, yeah, go for it. You've got this. And they keep going. And their, their reach, it's as honest and real at stage one as it is at stage 100. You're not in charge of the results. You're in charge of your reach. You are in charge of your reach. But I do want to tell you from an American, from a Texan. I want to tell you from a Texan. It can be done. We're this close. With 90 people. What could be done with 200? I want to tell you, I believe the will of God for the church is to pray continually. And that when Jesus comes, he's going to be looking for a church that's doing it. And I look at the kindness of the Lord who said, start a daily prayer meeting tomorrow morning at 5 a.m. and don't stop until I come back. And Jehovah Sneaky struck because he didn't want a 5 a.m. prayer meeting. He wanted to lure us in and get us started. And then when we started praying, Lord, what are we doing? Where is this going? Then he said, I want you to be a 24-7 house of prayer. And that was before we found any of these verses. But the Lord in his kindness was actually giving us some of the instructions for the final generation. I want to tell you, I believe strongly the Lord's desire is for night and day prayer. And he's giving an invitation and he's saying, reach with me. Reach back. Guys, there is a gem happening right here at, the, at Galveston, Antioch. It is an unbelievable reality what's happening in this church. You have a leadership team, you have people in your midst that are reaching to form a prayer meeting for Jesus with a, as a lavish offering to give him as much as we can give him. And as soon as we've given him as much as we can give him, we'll pray for more grace to give him more. It's the reach of the heart. Well, what's the foundation? It surely can't be that we're just supposed to do it. We can't be motivated by that. I just, we're, we're not wired that way. But I'll tell you what will motivate us the worth of Jesus Christ. That will motivate us. One of the things we talk about back at our house of prayer is the worth of Jesus is superior to all of our problems. Because he's worthy when we have a good day and he's worthy when we have a bad day. His worth isn't touched by my bad day. His worth isn't touched by I've got no money or I've got a lot of money. I've got no friends or I've got a lot of friends. I mean, he's his worth is not changing. I think as believers, we would be hard-pressed to find a Christian if we asked them the question, hey, is Jesus worthy of praise? I doubt any Christian, if they're really saved, would go, no, not worthy. I think everybody would go, yeah, yeah, he is. But the question we need to start asking is, how worthy? Worthy of how much? Let me read you a passage. This is 1 Chronicles 16. Look at the language here. This is just, 
This provokes a response. Sing to the Lord, all the earth. Proclaim his salvation day after day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous deeds among the peoples. For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and joy in his dwelling place. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of nations. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory do his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. We were talking earlier about the cost and two ways to look at the cost. One way is begrudging. Oh, I can't believe you want us to pray continually. I can't believe you want night and day prayer. Don't you know what that costs my lifestyle, Jesus? Don't you know what that means for my domestic tranquility? <laughs> Don't you know what that means for the kids' soccer schedule? Jesus, come on. One is begrudging and the other is, we're going to figure this out. We are going to give you the most lavish gift if it kills us. And we're going to do it because you're worthy. See, the real problem with night and day prayer, the real problem with 24-7 prayer, he's worthy of 25-8 and we have no way to give it to him. That's the problem. If you could get all 8 billion people or however many are here, 8 billion people on the planet, if you could get all of them worshiping nonstop. I mean, a lot of Red Bulls. They're up day and night. They never sleep, okay? All 8 billion people continually singing the worth of Christ, he'd be worthy of more. So now let's take it a step back and go, okay, if he's worthy of 8 billion people 25 hours a day, which doesn't exist, 8 days a week, which doesn't exist, he's worthy of that. Let's give him as much as we can give him. Let's, let's figure out how we can give him his worth. How we can lift up his name because he is worthy. All right, moving on to page five. I'm going to skip through the notes here a little bit. I want to wrap this up in a bit. So Jehovah Sneaky, he's the best. We're familiar with Jehovah Rapha. He heals Jehovah, long list of cool things and names that I don't remember right now. Jehovah Sneaky, though, he's got to be my favorite. He says something. He knows you don't understand it. He gets you to say yes, and then later on, unpacks some more of what you said yes to, and you're already stuck. It's called marriage. It's great. It's the greatest thing. No, marriage is beautiful, but there's a little bit in there. Surprise. Didn't know this was actually going to be a cross. The Lord is, he's awesome. He uses our lack of understanding in order to accomplish really great purposes in the kingdom because he's not asking for our understanding. He's asking for our yes. That's just so important. That's just a basic kingdom principle. He wants our yes. We'll figure it out later. And he's, and when we've got all the details, when it's 2020 hindsight, we'll always agree with him and go, yep, yep, that was right. That was better, smarter, gooder. I was not in a headspace where I could have understood that at the time. But you're right, your ways are higher and better. So let me tell you about what I believe to be one of the greatest manifestations of Jehovah Sneaky in human history. The Lord's Prayer. This then is how you should pray. Now just real quickly, the disciples of John the Baptist have been taught by John how to pray. 
the disciples of Jesus, they come to Jesus, they go, hey, John the Baptist uh, guys uh, got taught to pray by John. Would you teach us how to pray? Sure, I got you. I can't do this. Yes. He says, this then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, at first glance, I think, we think, we know what this says. Let me tell you what I think we think this means. Because it's what I thought forever. I think we think this means, God, do good stuff. Do more good stuff on earth. You know, here, do God stuff. Like, come on, this thing, it needs some God. Let your kingdom come on that. Let your will be done. Do, do God stuff over there. That'll be, make that better. And we get a little smarter about it. But I think we have never stopped to ask ourselves the question, how is it in heaven? We're supposed to be praying, let the kingdom of God be made manifest on the planet and let the will of God be manifest on the planet as it is a reality in heaven. As it is. So you guys are probably clear on this point, but you know God didn't find heaven, right? It wasn't like he was wandering around the universe one day and said, ooh, Diamond City, I'll move in. Like he made heaven, right? He's the architect and builder of heaven. We know that. If he, did, if he made heaven, he designed it exactly like he wants it. Is that, we got that? Does that make sense? And so when you talk about heaven, it's actually a really big place. It's really big. But when you get down to it, the most heaven of heaven of heaven is the throne room. It is the most center point. I don't know if it's the most center geographically, but it's the center focus wise of the entire reality. It's where God lives. You could call the throne room God's living room. Okay? It's his preferred environment. Now, don't you think about this. You're God and you're not God, by the way. You're God and you're designing heaven. You're like, I want my living room to be just like I like it. You know, all your living rooms are just like you like it. And when something's a little off, you fix it, the little picture on the wall or the size of the TV or where the ottoman is or whatever. Like you, you know, oh, we need new carpet. Your living room is a reflection of your preferred environment. We tracking? God designed the throne room to look and feel exactly like he wants. It's the room he's in all the time. He wants that throne room to be a perfect reflection of his preferred environment, okay? So, when we ask ourselves the question, on earth as it is in heaven, how is it in heaven? Well, again, there's a lot going on in heaven. But if you want to get to the most nucleus portion of what is occurring in heaven, you look at the throne room. What's going on in the throne room? Well, let's look. Part D, page 6. In the center around the throne were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back and all around, even in their armpits. Well, it says under their wings. But if you lift up your wing, I mean, isn't that an armpit? There's armpit. There's eyeballs in armpits up in heaven. That's just, I don't have any eyeballs in my armpits. Anyway, these living creatures, they got eyes all around. And what are they doing? Day and night, they never stop saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Day and night, they never stop saying holy. They never stop singing, worshiping, praying. They never stop. 
Wait a minute. That's what Jesus said in Luke 18. That they would always pray and not give up. And my chosen ones who cry out to me day and night, I will release to them justice and quickly. There, Jesus was telling us the model of heaven. He was saying, if you'll do on earth like they're doing in heaven, you'll get heaven to manifest on earth. Oh my gosh. So it says they never stop. Pay attention. Day and night, they never stop. Now, here's what's so funny. We are the funniest people. We read this passage and we have no issue at all that never stop and day and night means never stop and day and night. We have no issue. But when we read about it in Luke chapter 18, how it applies to us, all of a sudden the Bible verses mean something different. Well, always doesn't mean always. Well, except in Revelation, you know, chapter 4 and 5. I mean, there it means always. But it doesn't mean always when it's for us. It's the same Bible. We're fickle. We change Bible verses. It says they never stop. They always pray night and day. And then look what it says. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne. Whenever. They never stop. <laughs> that's the point. That's, that's the mystery here. Whenever they do this, whenever they give praise and worship, whenever they do that, which is they never stop, they always do it, then something else happens. The 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and they worship him. And they say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to give glory or to receive glory and honor and power. Whenever the living creatures worship God and they never stop doing that, then the elders throw their crowns out and they worship God and they never stop doing that. And Jesus said, Hey, the guys come up to him. Hey, Jesus, teach us to pray. He goes, <laughs> okay. Why don't you pray this? Our Father in heaven, who's holy, I'll be your name. You're holy. You're holy, holy, holy. Right here, Revelation 4. Okay. Let your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is currently manifest in heaven upstairs. And for 2,000 years, the church has quite unwittingly been praying for a global prayer movement. We've had absolutely no idea. It's probably the most prayed prayer in human history. Maybe besides help, I think help might make number one. But besides help, the Lord's prayer is probably the most prayed prayer in human history. Jesus has tricked the church for 2,000 years to pray for a night and day prayer and worship expression on the earth like it's happening upstairs already. Now, I just want to tell you this. If Jesus gives us a prayer to pray, and if you can get the saints for 2,000 years to pray that prayer a trillion times, I don't know. I don't even know how to come up with the number, but it ain't small and it ain't a billion. I'm just going with a trillion until an angel tells me different. You got humans on earth to agree with the prayer of Jesus. Give us a manifestation of heaven on the earth like it is occurring in heaven. And we prayed it a trillion times. You know what's going to happen? We're going to get it. We are seeing, this is tomorrow night's message. 
we are seeing a global explosion of night and day prayer and worship centers all over the earth, unlike any time in human history. It's happening right now while you're alive. It is the answer to the Lord's prayer. And we're watching it happen in our generation. This is the wildest time to be alive. I'm going to end with this. I'm going to go real quickly through it. Two times in Jesus' ministry, Jesus got feisty with people and started throwing things around and whipping them. It's pretty terrifying. He shows up at the temple. This is John chapter 2, bottom of page 6. This is the beginning of his ministry. He's just turned the water to wine. He's brand new to the scene. He walks into the temple, and as he walks in, you just imagine the disciples are like, hey, we're the big timers right now. We're like the disciples of the Messiah. This is going to be awesome. We're going to start the Jesus Conference ministry here in Jerusalem. It's going to be epic. He walks into the temple, and they go, hey, Jesus, you got a plan? Made up conversation. He says, they say, you got a plan? He goes, oh, yeah, I got a plan. They walk into the temple, and all of a sudden, Jesus reaches down. He grabs some cords. He makes a whip. He starts running around, walking people, knocking over tables, you know, knocking over coins, letting all the, you know, sheep and stuff loose. And everybody's just, it's total pandemonium. And the disciples are totally mortified. What are you doing? You were so nice yesterday. You made water into wine. Why are you making a ruckus? It's now the end of his ministry. It's now Matthew chapter 21. And he does it again. He walks into the temple courts. This is before he done any ministry in chapter uh, 2 of John, the beginning of his ministry. And now I hear it's the end of his ministry, Matthew chapter one, 21. And he does it again. He walks into the temple courts. He starts knocking over temples. He makes a whip. He is whipping. This is so intense. And you just imagine the guys are like, what is going on with him? And it says this, and then they remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. The only two times we have on record that Jesus got physical, it was about the same issue. It was about the house of prayer being turned into something else. I just want to say this really clearly. It wasn't what they turned it into. It's that they turned it out of its purpose. He says, you've made it a den of robbers. He would, have just, he would have been just as mad that day if they turned it into a bowling alley. It wasn't about them making it a den of robbers. It was about them not being a house of prayer. Do you know why the temple was built? This is an important theological point that, that we're going to tie into tomorrow. So I'm going to end with this, but I really want you to get it. Do you know why the temple was built? It wasn't because God was insecure. Well, all the other Old Testament gods have a temple. I need a temple. I'm like the loser God. I don't have a temple. It wasn't because God felt insecure. The temple was built because King David established a 24-hour prayer and worship ministry where he got the Ark of the Covenant and he put it in Jerusalem and he surrounded the Ark of the Covenant with singers and musicians and they lifted up songs to God night and day. And when David was old in years, he wanted to build a temple instead of it being in a tent. Because it had been in a tent. It's called the Tabernacle of David or the Tent of David. Incidentally, it took place on the plot of land that David bought back in that verse that we read in 2 Samuel chapter 24. 
that night that the Lord called me to start a daily prayer meeting, he also gave me the passage that was the passage where David was buying the dirt that David would turn into a 24-7 house of prayer. So David establishes this 24-7 house of prayer and he wants to build God a temple and God tells him, no, David, you can't because you were a man of blood. You were a man of war. You've got blood on your hands. You can't build it, but your son can build it. The reason the temple was built was to be a permanent house for a 24-7 prayer and worship ministry. So Jesus says this as we end tonight. Jesus says, it is written, my house will be called a house of prayer. The temple wasn't a house of sacrifice. It was not its primary purpose. It was built to be a house of prayer and they turned it into something else. And Jesus throws a hissy twice. And he clears the temple. He says, you have turned my father's house, which was always intended to be a 24 seven house of prayer. You've turned it into something else and it's not okay. I want you guys to get back to your purpose. He wanted it to be a house of prayer. He said it should be a house of prayer. And he prophesied, my father's house will be called a house of prayer. I wanna tell you what the future of the church is. I've got, I've got just simple answer. The future of the church, I promise you, is it will be a house of prayer. It will be. We're in the journey now of figuring out what that looks like. There's some conferences, there's some conversations, there's some prayer meetings starting. We are growing up into the fullness of our calling. It is God's desire for the church to pray continually and that we would grow up into our calling, that we would be that house of prayer. Father, I want to ask you in Jesus' name for your help. Would you give grace? Or would you pour out on us? Lord, these are challenging ideas. you got to make them real to us. It's not enough that I was up here yelling on a microphone. Lord, we need you to speak to us. Use these verses. Holy Spirit, anoint the Word of God. Give us clarity about what you're doing and what you're saying. And Holy Spirit, invite us into this in Jesus' name.